This episode of Warp 5 is brought to you by Audible.com, offering more than 150,000 titles for your smartphone, tablet, or desktop. To get a free audiobook of your choice, visit audibletrial.com slash trekfm. Also, help us keep Star Trek discussion coming to you each day by becoming a Trek FM patron through Patreon. Get access to exclusive content and become part of the team. You'll find all the details at patreon.com slash trekfm. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash trekfm. Hi, I'm Anthony Montgomery, Ensign Travis Mayweather on Star Trek Enterprise, and you're listening to Trek FM. Welcome, boomers and fans, to another episode of Warp 5, Track FM's dedicated enterprise show. I'm Norman Lau, and with me, as he is every week, is my esteemed co-host and content manager for the network, Will Wynn, who has just returned from his whirlwind tour of NoCal, specifically the Starfleet headquarters area. How was that, Will? It was great. It was really great touring the Academy grounds. It was really great touring HQ. I talked to Boothsby. He was really great. You know, he's kind of surly sometimes. told me to stay off the lawn. Um, uh, I learned about uh, the Academy Marathon. Apparently, there's a cadet that's going to do really well and run and beat all the seniors there. I don't know. He gave me a heads up, but uh, it was delightful, and I rode the air tram in. It was great. No, I'm just kidding. I just went to San Francisco, which, of course, everyone knows is the future home of Starfleet Command and Starfleet Academy. And it was a wonderful trip. And I always love going back to California. So now there's a picture that you shared with us on the Babel conference, um, the dedicated Trek FM listeners page on Facebook. And the, the where you were standing, was that actually like, did you actually find the coordinates of where you were supposed to stand that where they actually stuck the first kind of the, the first spade or the first shovel into where they would build Starfleet? I did. Future guy gave me the subspace beacon and I was able to nice. uh, serotypically track it down there to the exact coordinates of where they're going to lay the first stone. Um, no, I think it was just an approximation of <laughs> the bridge. You know, that's the thing. The bridge is seen in different spots, mm-hmm. uh, in different angles. And so it's sometimes at the Presidio, which is uh, like an old Spanish military site on one side of uh, the bay with the Golden Gate Bay. And then sometimes on Horseshoe Bay, it's on the opposite side of the bay. So you get different angles of the bridge. So sometimes headquarters is on the Presidio side. Sometimes headquarters is on the Horseshoe Bay side. It all depends on where the bridge is, really. So I just said, hey, this is a pretty cool shot to take a picture in. Um, But although I'm pretty sure where I was was where Spock and... Kirk were walking and they were talking in Voyage Home when they're just right. kind of talking about what to do um, with Jillian and like how should we tell her should we not I mean that kind of stuff so I think that was really neat. So Will had an awesome trip and then right now um, in this week or while we're recording this episode uh, Jeffrey Harlan who is our, our perennial guest on the show he um, he just got married and he is on his honeymoon so 
Congratulations, Jeff and Megan, on tying the knot. And we are thoroughly disappointed that you didn't do so in your Monster Maroon, but you guys are happy, so we'll forgive you for that one. So he's incredibly get, selfish to miss this podcast for his own wedding. I mean, he's a very selfish man. He could have brought a portable, you know, podcasting device, and we do have the technology. So, no, we're just kidding, Jeff. You know, have we love fun, you, on, Jeff. You know, we love you too. Yeah, exactly. You know, have a great time, you and Megan, and uh, we can't wait for you to get back. Um, before we jump into the show, Will, you have a little special something you would like to talk about with all the fans out there. Before the show, I just want to say how you can find Trek FM, and I just want to remind listeners that you can discover. An incredible amount of Star Trek podcasting contact by visiting us and finding us in all the various venues in which we provide our content. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn, Spreaker, SoundCloud, Windows Phone, and of course, you can always stream or download the MP3 files from our website at Trek FM and grab the RSS link as well. And if you're an Apple user, be sure to hit the subscribe button. That helps us out greatly and makes it easier for other listeners to find the show as they search iTunes. And if you like what you hear about Warp 5 or any of the other Trek FM shows, please leave us a five-star rating and a review, which will help us greatly increase our visibility for new listeners. You know, I love five-star ratings, and I, I have to say that I was able to take a look at our page, and we have a couple new ones. And thank you very much to two of our newer five-star ratings. We have one. The title is The Best Podcast for the Trek Show of What Could Have Been by Osawini and... This is absolutely fantastic what you wrote, and I'm going to read this in, uh, in all of its glory. Every Trek FM podcast is top-notch, and Warp 5 is no exception. The hosts cover most of the recent and most overlooked of all the Trek series, Star Trek Enterprise, having just finished watching all four seasons of Enterprise 10 years later. This podcast is a great way to reflect and remember all the character arcs, events, and behind-the-scenes happenings that was Star Trek Enterprise. So thank you so much, Oswini, for writing that. And another five-star review from... Tanada 1945, and Tanada wrote, Great show. Even though the hosts have changed over time, the quality of the show stays top-notch. Highly recommended. If you want to know more about Star Trek Enterprise, you found the right podcast to listen to. You get everything from behind-the-scenes peaks to uh, might-have-beens from people who actually worked on the show. And thank you so much, Tanada, for writing that. We try and do our best to give all the boomers out there and new listeners and fans of Enterprise as much insight into the show as we possibly can because... There really is just the four seasons that we talk about and some of the behind the scenes there. And even though that's not always episode related, we try and give you as much real rich content as we possibly can because Will and I love the show or else we wouldn't be sitting in the chairs that we're in. And to continue from the previous podcast, Singing the Blues for DVD Season 1, we are going to talk about tonight Singing the Blues for the Season 2 blu-ray set and uh will you did a little bit of a research for this season two blu-ray set so let's begin with some of the technical aspects of uh season two uh, as it uh, pertains to the blu-rays right so it's it's mixed in the same dta uh, dts hd master audio 5.1 mix as the season one and the other sets are and I think overall season two looks better than season one. I think they're incorporating more um, VFX. I think some of the VFX is not rendered at the at high def resolution at 720p. I think some of them are kind of up You can kind of see this in certain um, shots. But I think over time you really see, for the most part, uh, just a, a crisper video quality in this set in addition to the, the VFX uh, being uh, upgraded 
although it might not be upgraded perfectly, I think it still looks really great on, on almost all screens. And by the time we get to The Expanse, which is the ultimate episode, is the final episode of season two, things are looking really, really crisp. You're, you're, you're seeing, you know, Earth, you're seeing um, Starfleet, you're seeing the Intrepid class, you're seeing, you know, Klingon Bird of Prey, you're seeing um, the, the, the attack on Earth, you're seeing all these things. And it's really crisp on, on my screen here. And you can tell the difference uh, in terms of uh, picture quality on Blu-ray, even versus HD streaming. You can get HD streaming on Amazon Prime, for example, but you can tell the difference in terms of uh, video quality, at least I can, if you have an actual hard disk Blu-ray copy versus, you know, uh, a, a high stream buffer. I mean, a, a, a high definition stream, mm-hmm. even if you have a, a fast connection. So I think it's well worth um, the investment if you can, because you can really tell the difference on on any size screen. Now we talked a little bit about pricing uh, challenges for you know some of our listeners out there when it comes to collecting the Blu-ray sets individually, and there was something that we discussed towards the end of our first podcast when we were covering season one, and you were able to find at a very affordable price point all four. Enterprise seasons in one collectible metatome. And I just, well, I know that we discussed it a little bit, but would you mind describing a little bit more about that? Because I think that that's probably, as of right now, a lot of our listeners' best bet to getting all of the features that are, that are you know, uh, added into all of these Blu-ray sets, the individual Blu-ray sets, but in one collectible, affordable set. Oh, yeah. So I actually got mine off of Amazon UK, and it's called the Full Journey Blu-ray set. And the equivalent I got it when it's, when it's converted from pounds to U.S., including shipping, was about $85, including shipping for all four seasons, which is an incredible steal. And it's only available on Amazon UK. The, uh, the set is region-free, so you don't have to worry about it not being able to play on a U.S. player or a Canadian player or a Japanese player. It's region-free, so there's no restrictions there. Um, unfortunately, you you have to wait until the deals are up there. I think, as with most flash deals on Amazon, they don't last forever. So, if you put an alert for this set, it's the full journey uh, enterprise set, and when it drops below a certain threshold, and you kind of have to be familiar with doing some currency uh, um, changes, but it it happens periodically where you can get this at a very affordable rate because oftentimes when these sets were released, they were often ninety if not more, for just one season. And obviously, getting all of this together in one region-free set um, sent to you, it's really great just to have all of it in just one really great package. Um, Also, I also got, in the full journey set, there's also an additional bonus disc, which shows you uh, highlights from season five of the show, which I think is really cool. Um, I'm also kidding, because... Oh my God, you just sold me on that. Are you kidding me? (laughs) Did I really just... Did did I really... (laughs) Did right I really up, wait, just fool you? Right up until you said season five, I'm like, I could, you know, why not? You know, because it's, these kind of package deals always have some type of like upsale incentive to them. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so in out of ten, one out of ten thousand copies will have a secret bonus disc, which will Sign. be Manny Cotto's magic bag of hindsight, which is just him talking for an hour of saying, "This is what we could have put in season five. Basically, oh. he puts in everything. Q's in there, the Borg, the Dominion. Um, either Keeler's in there. I mean, everything is in this season five. So um, obviously I'm joking. (laughs) 
Um, I was wanting to see if everyone's uh, on their toes out there. But uh, awesome. aside from my facetious season five highlights, there are actually some really great added material here of which we're going to talk about tonight. Now, when Enterprise ended, that was broadcast at high definition in 720, well, at least for people that could you know, convert that signal to 720. But before the Blu-rays, and I just wanted to like, clarify this for the listeners out there who may not have really kind of tracked the progression of how these sets have been released. After Enterprise ended in 20, oh, sorry, 2005, which is 10 years ago, the release after that was the DVDs. And the DVDs were done in 480. Now, 480 is the standard DVD format. However, Star Trek... Enterprise was shot in 720, which means they actually had to, in, for lack of a better term, they had to basically degrade the video when they were watching it, when you were watching it, because most TVs at the time weren't converted to play 720. You were still, we were in that process of trying to upgrade all the technology. Are we going to high definition? Are we going to, are we going to stay standard definition? If we play this type of uh, new type of uh, format, you know, 16 by 9 versus 4 by 3, are we going to have the black lines on the sides of our TVs? What's that all about? And then cable companies were starting to change their packages as well. This was kind of like in the late 2000s, you know, around 2006, 2007. So the first time that people were actually able to see this, even before it was afforded on streaming, was in DVD quality. So there, there were probably people out there that were like, mm. What, it, this doesn't look as good as I remember. And maybe, maybe that could have affected the way that people just remembered Enterprise. Or like, well, I thought this actually looked better. So I know that um, I've talked to some people about when the Blu-rays were released, they were like, I had no idea that this looked just as good as as any Star Trek has ever looked. But that's because you actually had a chance. If you had the technology at your disposal, the right TV and the Blu-ray player to see enterprise at its best resolution possible and just to just to tack this on as a side note a lot of fans that watched the jj's uh jj's movies you know 2009 and into darkness because enterprise looks so good some of them have retroactively sought out the most recent version of star trek which would have been enterprise and it does because the Blu-rays look so good, they do seamlessly kind of bookend into watching those movies. When I was working on some of the conventions earlier this year, that's pretty much a, a pretty consistent opinion that I've heard about why people have returned to Enterprise, because it still does hold up and it still looks good. And it all has to do with the escalation of creating sets that record in high definition. There is no room to hide. And the Blu-ray shows that you're looking at the best possible Star Trek that you can see. And the next generation got that treatment, although the costumes and the sets kind of show off the fact that they weren't made for high definition because they were shot originally for 480. Um, I think probably Deep Space Nine and Voyager probably would have suffered um, a little bit of that as well, but they probably would have fared better because chronologically they were later on. But... Um, I'm sorry, Will. I think I just touched on a nerve. No, no. <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just agreeing with you because that's exactly why Enterprise got the Blu-ray treatment is because after TOS and, and the huge effort that went into that, Enterprise came out because it was it was already halfway there. And I think it was 
it speaks to the foresight of the production team. And it's mentioned in the special features that they had to fight initially to get them to film it at a higher resolution because they knew at some point it was going to transition and it was smart. And that's why we have basically Enterprise in Blu-ray because honestly, if they didn't do that, it probably wouldn't be on Blu-ray. They would probably have ended after TNG um, HD. So from the DVDs to the Blu-rays, you have a lot of the special features that carry over. You have a lot of what they call archival footage. You have deleted scenes. You have commentaries. And these are all well-documented and well-noted inside the liner notes of the Blu-ray package itself. If you're getting the standard jewel case single editions, uh, they're very gorgeous if you put them on yourself and display them because they have fantastic embossed packaging if you still collect the outside packaging. Uh, they have your standard, uh, I believe it's a three-flip insert, uh, two-disc per insert mechanic, which is pretty much standard. It's very robust. It doesn't have the hinges that are very that are cheap sometimes. They don't break. Um, all of the production value of all these DVD sets is fantastic, and, and Will, I'm sure your, your tome of DVDs is also really, really well produced. But the one thing that really separates the Blu-ray sets from the DVD sets, and pretty much one of the reasons, in my opinion, that you should, that it actually earns your dollars and earns, the, uh, the, earns you the right to buy it or the, or the need to buy it, are the two special, never-before-seen documentaries that were shot specifically for these Blu-rays. That's how these Blu-rays were marketed. I mean, when, these, when they say, like, never-before-seen, they were never-before-seen because on the very first documentary on disc one, it is the... It's the assembly of the entire cast since These Are the Voyages. And yes, cast members have been seen here and there through convention here and convention there, but not every single cast member has been together since the very last episode of Enterprise in May of 20... I keep saying that, of 2005. (laughs) I believe it was May 13th because we just covered that uh, a few shows ago. So... Forgive me for saying all the 20s. It just, it just kind of pops into your head. It's like 2005. No. But May 13th, 2005, the cast was together for the last time filming that show. Now they're all together. And I don't know how you felt, Will, when, you, when we first saw this, but there was when the credits rolled in and you saw all the cast and they're in the craft room, in the green room, and getting their bagels and their coffee and then those really nice candid moments... There was there was a little bit I'll I'll admit it there was a little bit of a an emotional charge you know that was there it, a little bit of the floodgates opened up and I was like wow this is our cast you know you you saw our cast for the first time together and in in just a really nice relaxed moment and then you know the uh, the the standard credits come up and it just the documentary rolls in and it's called in conversation it's just amazing to see them all together. So how did you feel when you first saw them all together sitting there on those really uncomfortable director's chairs? <laughs> yeah, no, right. I, I, I think, I think they all should get rid of those director's chairs for all these. Terrible. I know it's an aesthetic that they want to do, but they really do look uncomfortable. But just to, to dovetail with your point, I think it really was a floodgate because it was old friends, coworkers seeing each other for the first time, but it's been such a long time. And I think it was opening up. They were say, it, they were going back into their old routines, you know, backslapping and and and, and greeting each other. But there, I think there was also a, a hesitance and a trepidation there too, as well, because it's almost it was almost like the first day of school again, because it's been so long 
and you're seeing these people again, but you're not sure like what has changed, what has stayed the same. There's stuff that has stayed the same, uh, and the old uh, relationships kind of over time, and as the feature goes on, you kind of see that them get, you know, of course, uh, more at ease. But initially, there's a trepidation, just kind of like, wow, we haven't seen each other in so long, and there's so much to talk about. Where do we start? And I think you see that at the very initial start. Brandon Braga is the moderator. You know, of course, the co-executive producer. He's he's moderating this entire panel, and you could see for the uh, the initial minutes of this feature, there's a trepidation of like, so how do we start this? There's so much. Where do we begin? And it takes some time. It takes some time for them to really get into it. But initially, it's like. It's almost like pulling teeth. And Brandon says, I don't want to be the only one talking because he's the one that's trying to to gin up conversation and he slowly gets them to open up. And I think the interesting thing for me that grabbed me was just the the continued mea culpa that Brandon Braga has on Enterprise. Mm-hmm. And you see this throughout his interviews because he's in every of these features throughout the entire set is that he's just saying, there are mistakes that we made that I made. I'm really sorry that we made and I think he just wanted to get that off his chest and first and foremost was these are the voyages that was the first thing he went to in this feature now for our listeners out there who haven't seen the blu-ray sets uh, these special features and may not be able to get to them what we want to do is we want to set the stage in your mind's eye of what this room looks like from screen left to screen right these are how the characters have been seated you have Anthony Montgomery who played Travis Mayweather then you have Dominic Keating, you know, who played Malcolm Reed. And then for the very first time, I think, ever, maybe f- in a, from you know, sparing the occasional bit interview here or there, Jolene Blaylock, our T'Pol, is there. And um, there's, meant, you know, there's kind of like a big to-do about that because she doesn't really do these interviews. And then you had Brandon moderating. He's kind of like at uh, dead center of the room. And then... To Brandon's left or screen right, you have Scott Bakula, and then obviously he's Captain Archer, or is he Kirk? I just went. Everyone just kind of like said, "You're so fired, Norm." No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Um, from Scott Bakula, then you right next to him, you had Linda Park who played Hoshi Sato. Then you had Connor Trenier for a little while, who played obviously you played Trip Tucker, and then you had John Billingsley who played Doctor Flox. So that's how the cast was seated. And I will say it again in these ridiculously uncomfortable director's chairs because I wish they were on couches because they could have really sprawled out. They could have gotten relaxed. They could have been more at ease. They never really seemed They should have been on beanbags. I mean, come on, Norm. They should really just spit on beanbags the entire they time. Been a, they should have been a Google they in really like those pods, you know, in those relaxations <laughs> because that's, and we're talking about the future here, man, and that's where Enterprise was, right? That's so, true. Now, so um, we're going to talk a little bit about Will and I are going to talk about how we kind of perceived how each one of these cast members came across in in the span of this interview, because some of them were very relaxed and have a, had a lot to say. Some of them were a little bit more reserved, and then some of them were surprisingly candid and honest, and then some of them, not even some of them, one of them is basically our hero, and that's not Brandon Braga. Surprise, surprise. I'm sorry, Brandon. I love you and I, I love what you did, but it was the guy to the right of you who was our hero because of what he said and how he said it and just the style of And of course, we're talking about Porthos, was. right? We are talking about Porthos. Okay. And uh, we, have, we had a plate of cheese for him there. 
Actually, he would have been the only he would have been the only one comfortable because he would have been off those director's chairs in a bowl of cheese, <laughs> you know, with his face stuck in the bowl of cheese. So, um, so let's go to Anthony. Now, Anthony was Anthony and Linda were were um, an arg- you know, arguably the youngest, literally like the youngest, probably the most inexperienced actors that came on Enterprise at the time. During the course of their interviews, not in this particular documentary, but interviews from the past and on different uh, shows, they have described themselves as this is our kind of our first experience. And Anthony kind of really gets into that. So how did how did you feel about seeing Anthony there? And how did you feel that he came across just in terms of his earnestness? Because that's that's one thing that he has just just for miles is earnestness. What would you say if I said in a way he reminds me of you, Norm? And I'm being 100% serious. What, that he hates Enterprise? No, no, no. He actually does. We, <laughs> I hate Star Trek. I thought we were talking about Ewoks on this podcast. You always get me with that. I always think we're going to talk about Ewoks. It's for that season five thing that you sold me on. You sold me a bill of goods. <laughs> um, no, I think because, and I, and I mean this in a, in a good way, he's relentlessly optimistic. And you're a relentlessly optimistic person, Norm. And Thank you. I admire that. And I think for him, he, he held on to that. And he still holds on to that. And he has an earnestness, but it's not an earnestness that's unearned. I think he he really is appreciative of the role. I think of everything, that's the one takeaway of his. That's his one key takeaway is that he's just happy to be a part of this larger universe. With that said, I think there are times when, and he doesn't speak that much, although he does interject and he does kind of have a relation, like a, a bond with Dominic uh, especially, but I think, and, and Connor, I think, there are times when he's trying to say he was trying to understand why the role was written the way it was written. And I think the, the, the most uh, moving piece was in that in the feature he was talking about there was a great scene he did in Horizon. Remember mm-hmm. when he I has knew, that I knew you were going to focus on I that. love I love Horizon. That's, that's I your story. Everything yep. about the boomers, yep. despite what Brandon says about the boomer storyline going nowhere, <laughs> I think would have been fantastic. Prime storytelling potential. He was saying, I did a great scene in Horizon when I'm in the sweet spot and I break down because my father is dead. My father is dead. And I thought it was, it was, I nailed it. It's going to be in this episode. It's going to be great. And it got cut and it got cut because the producers, he doesn't name who, but basically the producer said they don't cry in Star Trek. They don't in Star Trek, Starfleet officers, human officers would be on that, which I think is of a, is a dodge because a, we've, we have seen officers break down in the future. And on top of that, if this is supposed to be a prequel, we're supposed to see that development, and right. I don't care how we've developed as a race, we're always going to be emotional when we lose someone like a father or a parent or a close loved one. So I think that question really cuts to the heart of it, of saying, like, that was my best work, and for some reason it was cut out. And you, you, you cut out the one piece of it, of an already uh, underwritten character. But even in my episode, I couldn't even get what I thought was my best material there. And I think Brandon was just... I think his response was, I'm, I didn't make that final call. It was Rick Berman. I, I really can't say why that happened, but I think that was the closest you could get to him really trying, him almost breaking that optimism, saying like, man, why did this happen in terms of uh, my character? Because there were moments in which I could have really shown, but somehow they kind of sanded off those edges. You know, that's actually a really good point that you bring there because when when he describes what happened to him and the reason why they cut that scene, let's fast forward two seasons to the very end of season four and let's go to Terra Prime and what Connor Trenier was able to do with Trip 
in in lamenting, you know, uh, Elizabeth. And exactly. you're just like, but now you see what happened to Enterprise when it was in the hands of the people that really wanted to run the show the way the show should have been run. Because you, you can't take away human moments from a show that's about exploring humanity. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of like, that's completely contradictory. And it doesn't allow characters to grow and stretch. That would have been a great thing for, for us to be able to see in Anthony because the one thing that is a, is a constant, and we've, we've read about this in the Babel Conference, and I've read about this in forums before, and I'm pretty sure that Anthony reads this in, in critiques of, of Travis, not necessarily critiques of himself, but in critiques of Travis, is that you don't really see him act. But if you're mm-hmm. taking away his best work, you will never see him act. And you will never see those moments that, you're like, you know what, I really kind of understood that Travis was the younger guy, but that moment in Horizon... That was one time it was his episode, right? And his father died in nothing, right? That was the closest. I, for the most part, he's always positive, but I think that's the first time he was like saying, What happened, guys? Come on, like, what happened? Yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. But I do love, I do love how he, he always feels this great familial bond with his cast. I mean, he said that when he had two sisters and four new brothers. You know, and I think that's fantastic. I think that's I think that's how he always was and is, and that's probably why he was cast for Travis because that's who Travis was. He was this person who wanted to just create family because his family wasn't there, not in the way that he wanted it. So his crew was his family and the people that he served with, and eventually that that became kind of like his just his his through line and. Very much a huge part of that is Anthony himself. So you're right. I agree that he didn't really say a lot, but what he said was very telling. And I think that I think he has a chance to explain himself a little bit more in conventions because we see him on the convention circuit more than than other cast members, like especially Jolene. Um, so Anthony is really I mean, it was great to watch him. And then next to him, uh, you had Dom and Dom. Actually, we had a little bit more of him in season one's Blu-rays because he was part of the three-part documentary that explored the casting decisions and you got to see a little bit more of his uh, reactions to casting, why he was cast. And I don't really think he got that much into it in this documentary. So for those of you who uh, want to hear more about that, that's in the previous podcast for our Blu-ray um, coverage. So uh, how did you feel about Dom and what he was, you know, able to at least uh, reflect on in this this documentary. I think he brings up his Voyager anecdote that was referenced before that he was originally tried out for a guest role in Voyager, thought he nailed it, never got a call back from Rick Berman, and then he got a call back about Enterprise saying, "We want you for the uh, a main character role, and we remembered you from Voyager. We just never called you back because we wanted to save you for this new show." And he's like, "Ugh." going to let me, you know, give me a heads up that this was happening. But yeah, he brought up that anecdote again. And I think Dominic, and it's referenced in another, when he's in another interview, is that he, of all the other characters outside of the trinity of of Archer, Trip, and T'Pol, like he was the one that like elbowed his way into a bigger role because he wanted to make a bigger role. And I think, mm-hmm. I think you could see that because also he was, he was talking, he was one of the, of the, individuals on this panel that was talking more and i think that that's always within his his modus operandi it's just he just wants to elbow his way in the conversation i don't mean that in a bad way i think he just always finds a way for him to kind of insert himself and i think it was also very telling too and um when scott mentioned 
Dominic, like he Scott was the one that always yelled at at Dominic. That I think you know, the 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 assumption is that he was maybe the troublemaker or like he, if there was any type of um, of admonishing on set, it would be coming from Scott. And Scott like had this very like quick retort. It's like you know, if anything, I was yelling at you. And yeah. Dominic was like, "Yeah, you're right." I, it was almost kind of like, "What happened there?" Like, man, like there were there were some there were probably some moments where Backley told him like, uh, "You knock it off, right? We're on set. We're professionals. Can you just shape up?" And I think there's that. I think Dominic, you know, for lack of a better term, kind of kind of a bro, kind of a bro actor, kind of has like a, a jocular attitude towards him, so you could see that that could be the dynamic on set that he's going to be the one that they're going to be like speaking to a lot about. Like, can you like? Uh, shape up a little bit can you not do that that type of stuff so well he was probably coming in with a little bit more experience than most i mean it sounds like it it sounds like he has just had a little bit longer of a repertoire Mm -hmm. of um not extras work but uh, a little bit more substantial work uh than some of the other cast members um definitely um more than the person who was seated right next to him that would be jolene blaylock now jolene was coming in to enterprise from a uh, currently a modeling career and there probably was a certain threshold of expectation for what she was supposed to do because she was Vulcan and, and you know, there's the, the Vulcans at this time, you know, they're, we're still under the impression that they're supposed to be repressing their emotions. So how much acting does she really need to do? But I'm going to go on record for saying this. And I say this with hindsight and I say this with um, when I watched it for the very first time uh, all the way through and its first initial run on network. I think that Jolene Blaylock's to Paul is probably the best evolved character in Enterprise. I think that she as an actress stretched so far from when you first saw her to the very end. I think that she was probably my biggest, most pleasant surprise as an actress. Yeah, I think I think that's... An, uh, I'm inclined to agree. I don't, I don't know if... I, I still think Archer has a better development overall, but I think you're right. I think T'Pol definitely has something that had a surprising arc and it got better over time, especially in season three, especially with season four. Um, I think she said something very telling. I don't think it was in this feature or maybe it was in another segment, but she basically said for, she basically said that her relationship with trip didn't go anywhere. I think for a lot of fans, we, we thought the relationship that occurred at the end of season four them uh, bonding over the loss of Elizabeth was very emotional. It was very um, well acted, and I thought brought a lot to both characters. And I thought it was a really good step forward for both of them because I think I extrapolated in my mind that they were going to be together and there was going to be substantial development for both characters because of the loss of Elizabeth. But I think it was very telling when Jolene said, "Well, we didn't really do anything. It was it was kind of it was won't will they or won't they?" And we never ended up doing anything and. Mm-hmm. I think she has a point too. I think she has a point too, saying they didn't really fully commit to it, but they kind of always left the door open. And I think that was a very telling point on her, on her behalf, because she really doesn't say much throughout the entire segment. And the parts when she does interject, I think was regarding kind of like where her character evolved, but it is very telling that throughout this feature, that it was a big step for her just to be here on camera with the entire crew. But at the same time, she wasn't saying very much and we don't know the reason why. And there's a lot that was unsaid, I think. And I'm just fascinated about what in her mind, like what was she really thinking about all of these questions that are being answered? What were her real, um, 
recollections about all of these um, experiences. Some of the notes, and they were brief when, um, when, when I wrote them down about Jolene's overall participation in this documentary, my notes were very private in her moments because when all of the other actors were, you know, joculating and telling their stories and, and having a good time, she was really reserved. I mean, she was kind of like almost in character of DePaul because, I mean, she was very pleasant and, you know, she was very agreeable and she laughed when, you know, everyone was having a good time and she did like emote a lot just in terms of uh, reacting to a lot of the anecdotes. But overall, I watched her the most because I wanted to see what her body language was telling me and what stories that I could get from from her reactions just to that. And there, there really re- wasn't a lot there because I think that she knew she was very aware of being on camera in this documentary. And I don't think that she wanted to reveal too much about when somebody says something that you don't agree with. Sometimes if you don't have the greatest poker face in the world, you'll make a face, you'll pull a face and there's your tell. And it was really hard to read her sometimes. And maybe because there wasn't anything there, but I think that's just because I think she wanted to be very professional. I think she was trying to be as diplomatic and pleasant as possible because I think there are a lot of interviews during when the show was on and it was written about. She may not have said it on camera, but there was stuff written about how she didn't like her the way her character was written, especially she made her um, uh, displeasure known about these are the voyages. She was very blunt about it. So I think, I think she didn't express her feelings and kind of her pushback against of how her character was written at the time of the show, I think now I think she was really trying to perhaps open that kind of can of worms and really dive dive into and just kind of really keep it neutral and keep it pleasant as possible. But I think there's a lot, there's an untold, I, I swear there's an untold story there. I feel like there's really a lot there that she's just not telling and time will tell if she will feel comfortable enough to, to share that if ever. But I think there's definitely something that, um, that was worth exploring, but just wasn't because of the, for whatever reason. Yeah. It's, um, you know, they're still all working actors. So there's really only so much that some of them may feel like that they can say, or at least, um, just in a way that doesn't jeopardize any relationships. Because I think in Hollywood, you know, it's very temperamental. The relationships there are, 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 strained i think at the at the at the outgo at the uh at you know at the very beginning of all these types of working environments so it, it's tough because you know some of these actors i'm and, and one we'll get to at the very end but some of them are very candid and some of them are like you know what judge me by my work judge me by um what i can bring to a role but i'm me i'm gonna say what i need to say because you're he goes you asked me you know, I'm not here soapboxing. You asked me. So before, but before we go all the way to Mr. John Billingsley, because that's who I'm talking about, we're going to go to, and I love the phrase that you use, Mr. Mea Culpa, Brannon, because if there's one true through line from every single interview that we've seen so far or that we can talk about, Brannon is immensely, I'm not even sure if that's a big enough word to describe it, immensely apologetic about his work and about the decision-making process that he puts all of these cast members through because of either his inability to stand up to network interference or 
making it uh, making it just not worth fighting for i don't know it's it's kind of like a it's hard to read that because he says that you know i i wanted it to go this way and you have all of this clout with star trek but it seems like the networks just really didn't care and you say you wish you fought for it harder now so why not fight for it then when it really mattered right yeah, I got mixed messages sometimes too because he's he can be hot and cold. Sometimes he's very apologetic and sometimes he's very defensive saying, you know what, I am proud of the work that I did. I did the best that I could. I think this is the best Star Trek that uh, I've made. I'm very proud of it. And the other times when he's he takes the opposite tech, it's almost 180 where he's like, I'm, I'm really sorry. I'm really sorry. And I think with here, I think for the most part, he, a lot of the apologies had to do with these are the voyages we mentioned at the outset. Like that was the yeah. first thing he let off. It was like, Sorry, guys, that was that was a mistake. My bad, my bad. And I think you could tell from the the other actors too. They're like, okay, it's good that we're hearing this from you right now. And I think they were also they were also uneasy on how to take that. They're like, yeah, do we say we agree with him that it was a it was a terrible choice? Is that like a backhanded slam, or do we kind of defend it? It was it was a little, and I think it was very much eggshells. And because the first five minutes was them really trying to figure out what to talk about. And of course he went there first in terms of bringing that up. And um, you could really tell the actors kind of trying to navigate that. There was a really, in, you're right in the first five minutes, there was a real serious kind of discomfort there, even though it was like this great reunion. It's almost as if your, your graduating class, your, your class, you know, the, all the friends and you have, you can, you can pick up, you know, the, from the very last beat that you saw these people to the very next beat that you're talking to them, you can pick that up. There's that ease about um, the camaraderie that's there, that band of brothers that you have. But then all of a sudden, the teacher or the principal comes in, you know, and he's like, yeah, you know what? We can't talk about this stuff because he doesn't know about it. And, you know, who knows? He might give us some grief about it. Yeah. And it's just not fun. And there was, um, there was something that we were talking about prior to starting the recording. Brandon was really, he was really what's the right word um uncomfortable i guess would be the right word expressing himself about how to cast female characters and his use of the word female just came off as very antiseptic is the word that i used before it was like the females or the females of the character it's almost like he was trying to say like it's tough casting someone who's sexy who's attractive but also has character that can emote a Vulcan's really tough, so with Jolene, it's like, you know, we want someone attractive, a model's great, but we want someone mysterious, exotic a little bit. But it was, he was, the him talking about female characters and women characters in general was just so awkward that it forced Scott Backlitch to say, you know what? First and foremost, the only thing you need to say about the, the females on the show is that they're the best and that they're great. And he said it so emphatically, like, just like, all right, just can we just stop this awkwardness and just say they were great? Because it was just this weirdness that he just couldn't get around in terms of describing them. And I I don't want to speculate. I don't know what the reason is behind that. But could it be there weren't enough women writers or women producers? I don't know. But I think that that was very telling. It was cringeworthy watching. They're like, what's going on? What is the subtext that's happening there? Right. No, I agree. And um, there's, there's, a lot of, there's a lot of Brandon trying to explain away choices that he made choices that the network made choices that basically strained his relationship with Rick Berman and choices that he can now say they weren't his best moments 
And we can all agree with a lot of those because we are actually agreeing with him as he's saying that these are the voyages, the Valentine episode of Enterprise, the theme song, or going to the more upbeat theme song in in season three. It, it, there were just these, um, at least he did fight against the boy band idea, which was mm-hmm. a great thing. So um, if he put himself on the line for that, we thank him for that because that would have been terrible so for our viewers out there you know we could we can continue um discussing this but you i think that watching brandon a lot of these documentaries and interviews it's it's really interesting because there's so much at play and i think that there's still a lot that he can say or could be said um but we're going to get to probably i think the single greatest part of this documentary and that's scott bakula And without a shadow of a doubt, every single cast member has said the exact same thing about Scott Bakula. And just to paraphrase everything that they said, they said that they love him, that he is a true leader, that he's generous to a fault, that he's probably one of the most honest men that they've ever worked with, and that he is the person that was really the glue that made Enterprise work the way it did. And I don't think, I mean... You, what else will do you think that you know was there because he was and he doesn't like he didn't he was very uncomfortable with the compliments because that's not who he is you know it's just that he's this every once in a while you actually get to see this great everyman and he's just a very hardworking, uh very dedicated to his craft um and it's it's very it's very it's a very persistent compliment that just kind of like permeates the entire documentary. I mean, what did you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I mean, Jeff Combs, who comes in later, says the same thing. He's like, I just want to tell you, Scott, that the one thing that struck me, that you're the greatest personification of all the treks, of all the leaders, because the captains are leaders on their shows. You were the best. And that's that's high praise, because he came from other treks, Deep Space Nine, he was in Voyager. He's comparing it to them and saying, you were the best, that you were the best leader. You're the best captain. You shook everyone's hands from craft services to the, the, the grips to the DPs, the makeup artists. You shook everyone's hand. You were moving lights when it was against union rules. You were moving boxes your, you know, yourself. You just wanted to make sure that everyone felt appreciated. And that was, he was Jeff Combs mentioned that. Um, I think Connor Trenier mentioned that. A lot of people mentioned the fact that just Scott and I think Linda, too, was just so fantastic as a mentor, as a fellow actor, just as a person on set because he looked out for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I think it was just fantastic just to hear that. And it was so genuine just hearing that. And you could see it actually made him uncomfortable. It actually made him uncomfortable saying, he's like, stop it, stop it. Yeah. Right, we're done talking about this. Move on. He just did not want to dominate the conversation. And uh, I mentioned this before on the Babel Conference and online Every time I see an interview with Scott Bakula in real life, it makes me appreciate Archer even more. And it's rare. That's rare in media because sometimes the the actor or the actress in real life isn't who they're portraying. And that's that's fine. That's They're an actor. They're playing a role. And sometimes you don't like the actor. You don't like the actress. And it makes you kind of like the, the character a little bit less. But this is an example where it goes to reverse. Every interview I've seen with Scott Bakula, he's such a good guy. I feel like there's like a good guy Scott Bakula meme out there because... It's so prevalent. It just makes me appreciate him and Archer um, after I see these interviews. And I think that that was uh, a really big takeaway. There were a couple of interesting notes that I took from from his portions. And one of them was that he said he was quoting Brandon, Scott and 
and Brandon were having a conversation and Brandon said to Scott, quote, people are going to appreciate this show years from now. They just don't get it now. End quote. I thought that that's obviously very prophetic. Um, starting to happen. It's start. It's starting to happen. I mean, it really is. And I think that the, um, the cast was talking about that. They were saying that they're just more and more and more. I think it was in London. Now at the time this was filmed in 2012, I believe. And, mm-hmm. Uh, they just, one of the cast members, they were coming back from uh, one of the, the London Star Trek, Star Trek convention. And they said, no, Brandon was saying this. I'm sorry, Brandon was saying this. And he said that a majority of the fans there were asking me questions about Enterprise. And I, I just, he thought that was just, it was incredible because, you know, here we were. It's funny, they were all trying to do the math, like how, how long we've been off the show. And since they were doing it in 20, uh, December of 2012, and the show went off in May of 20... Uh, <laughs> did it again 2005 i know i'm not going to learn and 2000 that was around roughly seven plus a little over seven years so yeah it, it's um it 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 was before its time i know that's very cliche to say but i think it was and obviously brandon keeps discussing that um it was in this vortex of all these different elements fan fatigue coming off the heels of voyager so quickly Dominic actually said something probably very, uh, very insightfully said, well, the reason why people weren't watching Enterprise at the time is because they were rewatching Voyager. Voyager pretty much was either just ending or has and had ended. And the fans that were trying to get other fans into Star Trek was like, well, you, this other show, that's not Star Trek. I mean, it doesn't even have an orchestral opening. It doesn't even have Star Trek. But you want to watch Voyager. So they probably stole a lot of audience share there. UPN really didn't know how to position the show. We, we mentioned like they were trying to do all these different ideas. The marketing wasn't there. Another point that I really wanted to bring up was they didn't, some of them didn't even, some of the stations that was uh, a part of the UPN network didn't even play the syndicated tapes that were sent to them because in favor of preempting them for a baseball game or something else that drove in ratings and advertising dollars. That to me is mind-boggling. This is a network show, and Scott, being the professional that he he is, and and in this the long career that he's had in TV, you know, he said that if we were a syndicated show, not a network show, if we were a syndicated show, we would have gone seven seasons. And he also said, and I agree with him, twenty-six shows is far too much product to put out on an on an annual basis. For they TV. were talking about that. They were like their episodes. They're doing double a night that no one was watching. That they were killing themselves they're breaking their backs making so much that they're coming up and they and they had and UPN had to burn two brand new episodes and those two brand new episodes may or may not have been good but they were just hitting their quota they just had right. to hit the number right. and that was very telling too so scott i mean he had just high marks across the board i think it's fantastic because you can really kind of just get that sense now next to him we had connor for a while and then I think it was Our Linda surprise, Park, yeah. though. Was right I'm sorry, Linda. Linda was next to him. You're right. Yeah, and uh, much like much like Jolene, um, she had a little bit more to say than Jolene, but not 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 much more. So, what were your takeaways from Linda? I think she had an appreciation because she said that she was also brand new. This was her first acting gig. She really appreciated that she grew up on this show. That she learned how to be an actor on this show. She learned how to be in Hollywood and to grow in this in in this industry through this show, the show was so welcoming as a family. And I think that was really important um, for that to, to kind of come up. I think she also just has an easy rapport with everyone else too. I think she kind of really was able to kind of, uh, kind of break a lot of the, the, the tension and the awkwardness at times. I think she was really great. And she mentioned something, I think it was, 
I think later on in the other feature too, I think was really important too was, and I think I'll just bring it up here, um, was just her not knowing when to approach the producers about a, about a, about a role, about maybe rewriting this or um, maybe restructuring it or maybe having more of a, an emphasis on her character. She wasn't sure because she was so new. And I think it was very telling that when Brandon realized, like, oh, Linda had some feedback, I think it was very telling that he had no idea that she had feedback. And he said, I think I was just so busy just trying to get the show running and, and juggling so many things I didn't know. But if I had known Linda Park had had some feedback, maybe I would have done something. And you and I have gone on the record many, many times saying that Linda Park Hoshisato was incredibly underwritten on this show. And I think it's really telling that Maybe there were avenues for them to kind of write a more thorough role for her, but maybe she didn't want to take that because she didn't know how far to push it. Brandon was so busy or they just didn't know to reach out to them. It was it just seemed like one of those sad missed opportunities. Like they didn't even know that they were supposed to be talking to each other about their roles. And I think it's it's um it's a little unfortunate, but it's also very telling too about how how these productions work. Well, because they had to do it at such breakneck speed. I mean, that's that's a, that's not a trade secret in Enterprise, mm-hmm. in the history of Enterprise. There wasn't really a crafted story Bible for design and marketing and character development and all of the nuanced details that really needed to be there. And it's, yeah, I mean, if anyone, I think, tried to go to bat for her, it was, it was Scott, you know, but I think that there are only so many channels that he could get to. Mm-hmm. as as uh, as dogged as he is about trying to protect his crew um but yeah you know linda it was nice for her to to say that you know she felt that she grew up a lot uh, on set and she learned a lot from scott's example and from everyone's professionalism and uh, i think that she was very much like um anthony and it was funny there was one that that one small anecdote with a uh, with uh um linda talking about they were on a um a show together i think it was um popular and uh, she, <laughs> it's funny, she played a, um, almost a racist role. Oh, yeah. Uh, I forgot Anthony. about that. Yep. Yeah. And that's how they met. And uh, it's just kind of like, it's a nice little coincidence that they ended up on Enterprise together as kind of like the junior officers that who we were supposed to kind of grow with. Uh, I think Anthony like pulled off the earnestness there a little bit more, but I think that Hoshi probably had, in the end, probably the more important role too, or of, of where she could have been with, you know, in terms of being the first diplomat, being the first attaché for, for first contact situations. But, um, but next to, next to Linda was, no, is Connor and Connor didn't really stay all that long. We don't know why, but, uh, he kind of, he threw in a couple jokes. I mean, he, he talked about how fortunate he was to get on the show. I think he was the cast member that had the, the most amount of competition. I think there was an executive producer who wanted somebody else. Yep. And, he got the role because I think Brandon fought for him a little bit more. And uh, Brandon said that if there was one thing on this show that you could have changed, what would it have been? And quite obviously, Connor said that, well, it would have been nice if you didn't kill me or if Trip didn't have, you know, wouldn't have died. It's not like he's like, sore or bitter about that at all. And I, like Linda said, like, let it go. It's been seven years. Let it go. It's true. Yeah. That was actually a thing. She's like, let it go. <laughs> it's fine. Let it go. Let it go. And yeah, I think... Man, we keep on going back to it, Norm. Like these are the voyages. Like it, it was, a, it was like the elephant in the room. Like how they ended everything. Right? There was a lot of kind of they were trying to kind of say their piece, but they weren't sure about how to say it. And 
there was a lot of tension. I think they were they mentioned that to go back to to Scott and Brandon. I think that was the one time they fought. Right? Brandon said the one time we fought was over that. Like you got mad, and it was a, it was an actual. I wouldn't say falling out, but it was it was it was a big argument that they had over that. I mean that would that would have be that would be the best fly on the wall situation to have seen what happened on set as that episode was being executed because I mean they're all professionals there yes but I'm sure that the cast and I think Connor was alluding to that in some way and and Scott obviously was vocal about of uh, his um, his disagreement with with Brandon and Brandon you know he copped to that it really was it wasn't it wasn't a service to anybody but I think we I mean you know you could you could talk about that ad nauseum, you know, when it comes to these are the voyages. So we're going to have an episode on it. Yeah. But I'm sure, I mean, you guys talked about that in Earl Grey, you know, and, uh, it's, it, it, it just, it, Brandon said that just, it didn't really serve anybody. It didn't serve uh, the fans. It didn't serve obviously enterprise. And they were kind of, they were really preempted from their own show on the very last show of enterprise and the very last show of star Trek ever. So, but yeah, so Connor had to he had to make um, uh, an exit, a quick exit. We don't know really know why, but there was kind of like a muffling when he was taking off his microphone, saying that this is all pre-planned. And lo and behold, Jeffrey Combs comes in to take his place, which was fantastic because he was ta- he was able to talk about Shran a little bit. And, and he comes in talking about all you pink skins. Or you, you or I forget the line. It was like all you pink skins didn't see me coming, right? And I think it took them a second. Like wait. Is that who we think it is? Oh, hey, it's Jeff Combs, and he took Connor's seat, and it was it was it was awesome because I love Jeff Combs, and he really is everywhere in Trek. So of course he would pop up here, and he actually surprised it didn't have that much to say. I think he was listening a lot. I think the one of his big one of his big things was talking about how Scott was so great, but also at the same time him feeling always like the first day of school. Because he was a supporting character. So they had a bond because they were the seven. But when he would come in, although he was always fantastic and great, it's really, I think it's really refreshing to see like even someone of his acting caliber still kind of had the jitters every time he came in because he was almost, he was always reintroducing himself to the characters and learning the rhythms. But that's, I think, what's what makes Jeffrey Combs that much more impressive as an actor because he could actually come in as Shran and just just come in right and not miss a beat because his performances were just so solid and he understood the character and the character motivations. And I wish he actually talked a little bit more about that. But one of the reasons why he was there, because Brandon said he earned his seat in the cast because he would have been cast as Shran as a a persistent cast member if we got into a season five. And uh, obviously he, (laughs) Jeffrey kind of lamented that a little bit because, you know, the one thing that I did get a lot from from a lot of the answers was uh, answers from honest working actors. None of these actors were, you know, they weren't on these huge contracts for huge salaries. So a lot of them referenced the point that, well, as an actor, it was just nice to get a gig. Or as an actor, it was just nice to, you know, have a steady paycheck. Or I wasn't sure if I was going to pack it all up and go back home or was this a, a was this a good choice for me or not or you know I I, I was uh, my stomach was tied in knots because I didn't know if I was going to get the part one other guy is he was right in front of me and it sounded like he was killing it because he was making bird call noises and it was slaying the executive producer and that was John Billingsley 
And he was I probably the most- seen that segue coming a mile away. That was smooth, man. That, that was, was good. Fun. That, was that was good. good. Right. Um, so John Billingsley is probably the one interview that surprised me the most because he was probably the most candid. He probably was. Uh, uh, no, he was uh, all of the crew. The most honest about being an actor, being a working actor. He had very strong opinions of what he would have liked to have seen in the show. Uh, he was very witty, um, sarcastically so at times. But I think it's just because he's just like, you know what? I've had a pretty solid career. You know, I'm a theater actor. I've come in. I've done some TV. I've, I've, uh, I have a lot of credentialed work. I'm probably making some real good royalties. And now I'm on Star Trek. How, how could it get any better than this? Because we're obviously going to get seven seasons. Wow, wow, wow. So, well, how did you feel about uh, John? John is is character. I think you could tell he has a very strong personality. And sometimes, I think sometimes his jokes landed, sometimes it didn't land. But I think it can't be disputed that he's a character, both as Phlox was a, a unique character on the show and Billingsley was a unique character amongst that cast of them just talking. Because he really is, you could tell that he's like a film buff, a TV buff. He's, out of all of them, He's watched Star Trek just to watch Star Trek, right? Just to, mm-hmm. he's familiar with it. And he, it could easily see him segueing into the role of, I could see him writing or co writing an episode if they had continued. I could see him behind the camera, behind the scenes, because he had a lot of uh, really valuable insights to say about he didn't buy the fact that there was enough danger in the show. If this is supposed to be new, then how come everything seems so familiar? The transporter, the episode Strange New World with the transporter. The, the, it should have been a motion picture transporter accident. It should have been that as opposed to just tree mm. branches and leaves uh, taped to someone. There should have been more of a sense that we're not yet perfect, a rougher edge. And he mm. was talking like a fan almost. He was talking as someone that has watched Star Trek and understands it. And he had that perspective. But at the same time, he's like, I'm happy the fact that I got four seasons and we got to develop what we could have. Um, but he also said that the fourth season was liberating in a way, which I thought was very insightful, saying that who's to say that the fact that we knew that this could have been the last uh, the last season, which ended up being, that this liberated us to, to be our characters in a way that we weren't before and arguably created the season that I think many, many fans feel is the strongest. And I think that there's something to be said about that is that I think by that they just were, were going for it and it showed on screen. John actually had this really interesting, insightful comment. He said that there's this huge shift in the way that the audiences perceive Star Trek as he sees it from both a fan and as an actor. And he said that you have nostalgic audiences versus audiences who believe that there should be more of an evolution to how Star Trek was approached for Enterprise. This meaning that Star Trek, the original series had for all intents and purposes had a very specific box you had to have it look this way and then the captain had to be this way and then the trinity had to be this way and that kind of that kind of permeated into the subsequent seasons although you're seeing a little bit more outside the box thinking when you finally got to enterprise that box should have been completely disassembled and because like john billingsley was alluding to you were going to an era pre the original series. So the box hasn't yet been formed. The captain, of course the captain should be, you know, if he got into a fight, he should be bloodied and battered. Mm-hmm. He's fighting, you know, tunics should be torn. Um, you know, the away teams should be at risk. 
yeah, if you got transported during a sandstorm and this is the first commercial transport on a, on a quote-unquote military vessel, it could malfunction. Someone's head could be lost in the process. He wanted things to be more grim and grittier and you, you still have that sense of danger with Star Trek. And you really did a little bit in the, um, you did more so in TOS because that's where the red shirt legacy comes from, right? But as the series went on, the series became a little bit more antiseptic in terms of human frailty. Like everything was just a little bit more protected, more secure. And Billingsley said, that's not how it should have been at the very beginning. So yeah, I think a lot of fans... we had, we've had shows like that. Our Enterprise show, Remix, we talked about the original, what we thought should have been the first season. And Brandon talks about that too. Is this the segue on, so. to the next segment, Norm? You almost, oh, you got me. You got gotcha. you. <laughs> I got gotcha. you. You're getting slick at this. So yeah, you, um, the, so the whole first, what we just talked about was the very first documentary. And I think for me, it was the, it was probably the more important of the two in, in terms of if you want to collect this Blu-ray or not, because it is the cast. You're, you're getting the cast's, well, I'll say more honest thought and more honest opinion than you ever had, because this is probably the most concentrated, I'm using Brandon's words, the most concentrated grouping of these cast members, he said, since the very first read-through of Broken Bow. And a lot of the cast members kind of they were scratching their heads like, no way. And he's like, yeah, all of us together, including me. So, for, you know, it's definitely worth picking up or at least trying to find uh, an alternate way of watching it because you fall in love with these characters all over again. And more importantly, you fall in love with the people behind the characters. And it's an so, hour and a half. There's a lot of material there. You're right. You're right. There is. It's, it didn't seem that long because you're, you're just kind of like hinging on every word and, and you're waiting for you know, someone to, to, you know, compliment Scott again and for him to get all blushy about it. But no, it's really great and it's definitely worth your time. But the second documentary is just, it's really fantastic. It's a continuation of the, of the style, the in-conversation style of the, of, of season one. And you can also find this on disc six of the season two Blu-ray. And it's a three-part documentary called Uncharted Territory. And what they're covering here in these three 30-minute segments, basically, it's kind of like the the choppy waters of season two and how the creative staff and how the actors, they all had to really take a really hard look at where Enterprise was going, not just in terms of the writing, but in terms of the ratings and in terms of the overall audience saturation and response to is this working or not because I think there was one point in time they were really dancing that knife edge whether or not this is going to go for a third season and we obviously know it went to four but around season halfway through season two in the documentary is where things were really tested for this entire production so part one was about how season two was structured part two was a little bit more on how the crew was evolving and adapting to the kind of the, the negative dynamic changes that was going on behind the scenes. And then part three was course correction and how um, Brandon basically wanted to go into this Zindi arc because they really didn't, they, they really didn't have a choice. So we'll, 
what did you think about this particular documentary? And could you, you know, break it down a little bit more in these different three parts? I would actually like to call this Warp 5 before Warp 5 because all of their commentary from co-executive producer Chris Black to writers uh, David A. Goodman to Andrew Bormanis to Mike Sussman to, to Brandon there and John Billingsley, they were all hitting the points that we've talked about on Warp 5, right? It was almost mm-hmm. like, wow, can you, we get these? The, were they doing podcasting? Were they uh, listening to our podcast, uh, I guess, in the future, kind of do this documentary? Because what they were saying is what we've been saying on this show for so long about the premise of the show was at odds from the get-go, that they were literally at odds with each other. A sequel and a prequel at the same time and how that's going to be a conflict and a muddle, right? They just said time and time again, temporal Cold War doesn't make any sense the way we're writing it. And it ended up being a little bit better than we thought because uh, I forget the actor's name who played who played Daniels, Kuman um, Daniels, who was actually, who really provided really great um, commentary as uh, he was also in the set as well. He provided really great commentary saying, you know, I, I was just glad to have a role to play, and I'm glad that we kind of, you know, went through the the story that we did as best we could through Shockwave and and other other parts of the story. Yeah, a show that was at odds with each other uh, with itself, and you know, Chris Black saying there was a moment in Broken Bow where Trip was talking to to Paul, and he was saying, in the past century, in the past few decades, we've gotten rid of war poverty, disease, you know, that's not small potatoes. I think Vulcans need to give us more respect. And Chris, it cut to Chris saying, that's the show we should have made. I want to see them getting rid of war and poverty and disease. And that's something that we've talked about in our remix episode is how do we get from there to here, right? How do we get to all these things? But Enterprise is in this weird zone where it was the beginning and yet they skipped over the really meaty, trenchant parts of how humanity becomes the humanity we see in Star Trek. And he's like, that's the thing that we missed. And, and, and John Billingsley just hit on that continuously in terms of just a show that weirdly felt it was the same. It was retreading the same things. It w- this could have been any other series. And I think by season two, midway, it was that breaking point. It was very much an inflection point of, so we got to go. Uh, into a new direction, we got to step it up, or this is going to be a two-season Star Trek show. Can you imagine if Enterprise was just two seasons? It was done. How crazy that would have been. But I think, I think they've been. A, I think they're being a little bit too hard on themselves because I think there's actually a surprising amount of good episodes in season two on the back half of it, leading into the expanse, leading to the Zindi arc. I think you can see that, and it's referenced by um, by Scott and some of the actors saying by the latter half of season two, even before we got to the Zindi arc, we were telling better stories. You got Judgment, you got First Flight, you have these types of episodes. Horizon is in mm-hmm. there in the, in the back half of the, second, of the second season where they're beginning to tell better stories and they're, becoming, they're beginning to become more comfortable. But it was definitely... Like you said, Norm, it was getting very, very choppy. Well, just to, um, for our listeners' sake, um, Warp 5, episode 67, uh, was our Enterprise Season 1 remix where we kind of we, we extrapolate a little bit more on what, uh, you know, what John Billingsley was saying that he wanted to see a, a just a, a grittier, grimmer, more realistic version of it. How, and this is the, this is the question. This is kind of like the $64,000 question that they keep hitting on is how would the audience have reacted to a Star Trek episode on land? 
for one season, right? They might and have think, hated it. They might have said, what the heck is this too, right? So it's 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 how can you disprove a negative, right? We don't know what the reaction would have been. It, it could have been worse. They'd been like, this is Star Trek. They're not even in space. How stupid is this, right? It could have easily mm-hmm. been that too. And that's the, I think that's um, one of the things that you have to kind of get to understand about network executives is that network executives don't take risks. They just don't, especially when you're the flagship, not to, not to you know, pardon the pun, but when you are the flagship show for a burgeoning network. You know, this is the, United, this is the UPN, the United Paramount Network, and Enterprise, what's its Anchorman show? And if that didn't succeed, what does it say for the rest of the shows that are falling behind it? Which we, we all know what happened there. But yeah, if, if you were trying to like pitch this to these network executives and say, hey, you know what? We're going to do this. We're not even going to put Star Trek in the title. Then you either have to commit all the way and fight for it or you're going to get what pretty much happened in the course of season one to season, halfway into season two, which is a lot of this inconsistency because of the indecisiveness between the network, the network executive team and the creative team. And again, this is a lot of the, what we're, what we're talking about here is what, you know, the guest stars on the documentary are saying, um, you're getting a lot of the insight from the writing staff. You are getting a lot of, uh, or more apology from Brandon. I mean, it's almost unfair how much he is putting himself on the, under the lash you know, in, in these Blu-rays because, I mean, unless he had a crystal ball, he didn't know what was going to work and what wasn't going to work. You know, he, and he fired his entire writing staff, brought in new writers. He thought that was going to work. And there were some episodes that hit, like Carbon Creek, I thought was fantastic. Mm-hmm. You know, obviously, First Flight, we talk about that. That was the basically the, the, the germination of what should have been the, the first season. And then you had um, some episodes that just, you know, they, they fell flat. And there, there was a meeting with, I believe, with Brannon, and he talked about it with Scott, and he said that hey, we need to, we need to write this ship. We need to make a really serious decision here on where the show is going to go. And this is where Scott actually said some really interesting things, not only um, in the documentary, but also in his character uh, profile in the uh, when when we were talking about the whole cast. He could not believe that that a captain can't engage in a certain way in this in the series. Like a captain can't get into a fist fight without getting beaten up or sweaty or disheveled. He can't believe that you know that 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 Starfleet or can't be seen in a in a, in a context that's less than perfect. And he said that this isn't this isn't the Star Trek that I signed up for. When you told me that I was going to be the captain of the very first Enterprise and we're going to do it 150 years before Kirk and Spock, this is what I thought was supposed to happen. I thought that technology was supposed to fail. I thought people were going to die. I thought things were going to be messier and dirtier and we're going to have to get down and get our fingernails dirty and, and, and claw our way into what we, what we earn in the original series. And he said that unless you find a way to get this show back into those original tenets of your ideas for what Enterprise should have been and what I believe Enterprise should have been, then we're not really going to go anywhere. This is going to be a very passe, very formulaic show, um, and, and this is, it's just not going to work. This isn't, you're not going to get the best work out of us for sure because we're not going to be inspired because the scripting and the strategy and the decision-making 
isn't something that is very conducive to the best creative environment. Yeah, I think it, he was he literally said, I'm speechless. I couldn't even react to the suggestion from a studio executive that there can't be blood in a fight. Or I think it was a producer saying, no, we can't have any blood in this fist fight. He's like, I, I can't even, I don't even know how to deal with that. How am I supposed to have a fight with no blood? And I think <laughs> right. that's, that's very, weird. it's very telling. And yeah. I think, I think you see that shifting towards the end of season two. And obviously as, as we kick off season three with the Zindi arc, we see there's there's a shot in the arm and Brandon himself says that for the first time with this arc he felt excited to write about Star Trek again that he wasn't burnt out we'll get into it when we talk about season three but I think it's it's such a Hail Mary like you kind of you could tell if you watch it you kind of tell like man where where are they going to go with this but when you see the the behind the scenes of how season two wrapped and how season three developed, you understand how much of a Hail Mary it was. We're just like, we really don't know where this is going to go. We're kind of winging it. We're just going to say it's a one season long arc and we don't know how it's going to end. We're just going to go with it. Attack on Earth. Let's go. It's literally just, it, it was such a bold move. That was, I think Desperation's a little bit too strong, but it's close to it. It was really close to saying like, you know, we, there's, I'm just going to shake this this snow globe and that's all I'm going to do because it needs just that shake. I can't I can't think any further from just the actual disruption of the act itself, just the attack on Earth. And and I think they even mentioned uh, Mike Sussman or, or, or I think Chris Black mentioned like, yeah, we talked about um, doing a season long arc and a season two. And I remember them coming in talking about it. And he said that his mind was so fried from writing season two. He's like, I, I don't I don't remember them talked about it. I said yeah well we'll deal with it and then they just went you know went to the bar and just kind of decompressed it, and they just it didn't really hit them that they were going to have to do this because for them it was like school's out I'm going to deal with this in the fall right mm-hmm. we're done mm-hmm. I think that was very telling too is that they they knew this was coming Scott had had buy-in the actors had buy-in but for the for the writers and producers themselves they were so burnt out on just getting Enterprise here in, in the muddle they've been in that they just couldn't even think about the next step, despite how big the next step was going to be. And correct me if I'm wrong, but so Brandon worked on Next Generation with with um, Ron Moore, right? So mm-hmm. Ron Moore started, they, they started that kind of that, that, that Trek writing camaraderie pool, you know, in the Next Generation. Then he and, did he, now did he work on Deep Space Nine? No, that was the one okay. he didn't work in. So okay, he so skipped it, but it that. was Ron and Ira, right? Yeah. So Ron, so yeah, Ron and Ira went to Deep Space Nine. Michael Pillar went to Voyager. Brandon went to Voyager Two, and then I think when Michael Pillar went and then left to kind of do the movies, he left Brandon to to show run the end of Voyager, leading into Brandon show running Enterprise. And I think this is where we're gonna segue into Ira, right? The Boom! You got me. You got me. (laughs) But you're right because um, I think that if there's one thing that really, really sticks out as as probably one of the most critical points of this documentary, it's it was Brennan's retelling of when he brought in Ira Stephen Bear in to assess where he was with the show and his and Brennan's current notes and where the show was going. And gosh, I mean, well, you loved it. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm a niner. So I, I love I, it caught me by surprise. Oh, they're mentioning Ira. And Brandon was basically Ira just ripped the show apart just to pieces because basically Brandon had brought him in to advise, to consult. But it was also kind of testing the waters to see if 
would he be interested in maybe coming aboard and kind of like adding some input on a more formal basis? But Brandon basically said that I ripped it so much that he basically, you know what, I guess that was the worst job interview ever because you're not going <laughs> to be on this show. And I think he kind of made a joke like, you know, I, I was still grateful for some of the advice that he gave me, but I feel like Ira is kind of like the, um, what's the word? Like the, not the, not the black sheep, but like he always brings the bad news in Star Trek. So he did the same thing with Michael Pillar with insurrection. When you, uh, reading about, uh, Michael Pillar's fade in the making Star Trek insurrection, Ira did the same thing with Michael Pillar when he read over the early drafts of insurrection, just saying, this doesn't make any sense. This doesn't make any sense. What are you doing? And he kind of just kind of like tears everything apart and kind of like, at least, offers that contrarian opinion. So I think that was really interesting because where were the other elements of, of Star Trek um, at this late, at this later stage in the franchise? And Brandon had mentioned earlier that he missed having Ron Moore. He missed having the Trek writers that brought him through Voyager and Next Generation. Ron Moore is gone because they had a falling out in Voyager because Ron Moore was briefly in Voyager after mm-hmm. he left Deep Space Nine. After Deep Space Nine ended, he was over in Voyager briefly. And they had a falling out too. And I think they've they they mentioned that they've mended it up and they've they've patched things up, but there was a falling out there as well. And it was really interesting. At this point, it really just was Rick Berman and Brandon Braga, Ron Moore, Ira Bear, Michael Pillar had they'd moved on to other things. So they were carrying on the legacy of Trek, but they didn't have a lot of um the foundation that they had before. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Brandon was uh you know, he was he, he had some fond memories, you know, um, as he's describing how challenging it was to be in this kind of like mired in all of this stressful and uncreative environment. I think he was like, yeah, I wish I wish I had my guys with me. If I had that writing team that that has that brought all of these seasons up to this point and I had them working with me or at least giving me something to work with or feeding my creativity or being able to bounce ideas off of. Now, that's not to take away anything from the writers that brought us the four seasons of Enterprise, but there's that, you know, you have your dream team sometimes. It's like, you know, um, if anyone watches sports, you know, um, you have a specific team. He's like, hey, you know, when you're when one of your favorite players gets traded and they get thrown onto another team, whole dynamic changes. And you're like, why can't they be just as good? Because they have our superstar player on this team. I mean, why can't Michael, you know, why can't uh, why can't the Washington Wizards be as good as the Bulls? Because they got Jordan on it. Right. I mean, they got to be as good. Right. It doesn't work that way. You have your, you have your team. You have your crew, and uh, it's just something that uh, he wasn't afforded because not enough time. I really do think that that is the real sticking point with what happened with Enterprise. It was, it's not so much it was ill conceived or ill planned. It's just it didn't have the right amount of time to conceive and plan and execute and to be, get everything in order. Right to be the most ambitious of them all because it had right. the toughest job. Is like how do you be. How do you come before everything and make it relevant still? That's that's the hardest job. Like, how do you make that relevant? How do you make it before the 1960s but still make it watchable now? Yep. No, absolutely. And we, you're right. We will get to a lot of that content when we review the season three Blu-ray set. But overall, I mean, I think that this is just another solid product for this entire blu-ray set from season one to season four it has i think a little bit higher grade um quality video because i think that the remastering process is just a little bit finer tuned the audio is still as stellar as it was in the very first set but for me i think the real tipping point between 
what I liked about the first set and what I like about the second set is that as a fan and as somebody who really loves this cast, it was probably the greatest treat to see them all sit down and just start just start gushing out, you know, over each other and, and falling in love with each other all over again as friends and as as family, as a cast. And it was just nice to see. And as a fan, I like being a part of that, even if from an, you know, just a observation mode, if we were in a holodeck, you know, it's just nice to see them be who they are, be the people that that uh, that they are and the actors and, and just people of uh, of nice quality. I would I just want to add one more thing is that I think it was really great that that Scott mentioned. I think they also uh, other actors mentioned, too, was the terrific, outstanding work that the production team put into this. I oh, think yeah. he really when he he mentioned that in his final comments that he that they did their job, but the people around them had been with Star Trek for for 15 years plus that they have been doing this for so long that they couldn't do what they did without them. And I think that was a really great shout out because that's also, I think an important, but understated part of Star Trek sometimes too, is the universe that they create physically, literally the, the annex one bridge, all that detail, what the Akutas did, what Herm Zimmerman did. They all had to do that. And like you mentioned, Norm, they had like five weeks between the end of Voyager to do this and they, and they had to make it work. And the fact that, when Enterprise ended, this was not just the end of a show. It was the end of an era. Like this team is done that this team that got really good at making Star Trek that really got that was that were world builders that built a universe was over. And I like the fact that they at least acknowledge the fact that that's why Enterprise means a lot, too, is that it was the culmination. And I think they're right, is that this was the best Trek building they've done. It was so intricate. It was so well thought out. It was the design of the world that they created was so well done. And I think that was a really good takeaway that um, I was really glad they included. You know, I, I don't want to sound like, um, like a broken record when it comes to my rating, but I'm going to have to give this another five-star rating, the set, because it is, it's when you buy something like this or, and, and when you look at what you're being offered as a product, I mean, you have the, uh, the outward quality, you know, you have the physical characteristics of it. I mean, it's just a well-made set. It's well-produced. Um, but the content that has been just masterfully executed and presented to you in a format that you've never seen before, that's worth it. I mean, for me as a fan, that's kind of like worth the price of admission because I can see the episodes. You're right. You can stream them from Amazon prime or Hulu, Netflix. Is it on Netflix? It is on Netflix. Yeah. So you can get it from all your online services. You can get it from iTunes and, and you can get that at, at just just the content of the show itself, and for some people, that's that's good. That's that's fine. It's it's good enough. You know, they just want to watch the series. But if you really are a fan and you really want to get deeper into your fandom with Enterprise, I, I can't even I can't even give it enough stars because it goes beyond that. You know, ratings aside, it's just it's what you want to see, and it's never been before released any of these interviews. So that in itself is exclusive. And if you can get it at the price that Will got it for, that is a must get because that's 20, 20 bucks per episode, really. We I mean, are getting a cut of this. I think for full disclosure, we are getting a cut of this. So <laughs> that's why we're just, uh, I'm just kidding. <laughs> so, I mean, what do you think? Another five-star rating, Will? Yes, uh, hmm? I think so. I think I love the, I love special features. I love the value-added stuff, especially for, 
for Enterprise, a show I feel is still very much in the shadows of a lot of things, it's really great to see this because there's a really finite window that you can get all this stuff down and recorded for future progeny and, and future viewers. And that's why I'm just a little sad that DS9 Voyager looks like it's not happening anytime soon. Yeah. And there's a, there's a, there's a closing window for that. And I just wish that we could see it for the rest. But for Enterprise, I think it's really great that we got to see so much behind the scenes because interest arguably I feel like it has the most interesting backstory because of so much of what's going on. It's almost it's almost more interesting to me talking about it than often sometimes the you know the episodes we talk about because there's so much going on in terms of the behind the scenes production. Well I mean you know that it's a special show that if it can avoid actually having a boy band written as part of the dynamic of the show and they were able to kind of like uh, steer away from that, you know that we had a shot. You know, but it kind of it would have been kind of cool to see an InSync on the ship maybe once. I don't know. Can you imagine? Can you imagine? Can you imagine? I can't. I can't even fathom. I can't even fathom how that would be. And that's another interesting thing is Enterprise is really at this point in which TV was changing. Right? They were mm-hmm. arguing about that in this features too. Like, I wanted not to do episodes anymore. The episodic thing was killing, which was killing us. It was strangling us. I think is what. Brandon said like it was just yeah. killing us that we just had to crank out 26 episodes and it was very much at the TV was changing and it was like this weird time period where like serialization wasn't everything TV now is serialized all over the board yeah. but now like when it was on the air like it wasn't it had to be in this weird mold and it had to be everything to someone well one last little tidbit just because it's awesome and it's so mind bogglingly ridiculous one of the network executives actually said well you have a restaurant on the ship don't you and and that's all we really have to say about season two on blue and they're like you can bring in extra revenue (laughs) if we have like franchise like fast food franchises or like sponsored by it so it's like it's like a clear like shot to like a coca-cola bottle like the product placement is so obvious Ugh. Like a replicator would actually like replicate something with a Coca-Cola swirl. Mr. Pib, but for the future or something like that. Some ridiculous idea like that. I know. I know. And you know what, folks? You can hear all about it on season two because it's fantastic. And uh, you might want to pad your walls when you watch it sometimes because you're going to be slamming your head in a couple moments. I mean, it's guaranteed. You're just going to be like, what? Anyway. So, you know. Okay. So, Will, that was awesome, right? That was a lot of fun. And I there's still a lot, a lot that we didn't talk about. So I think I think we, we talked that we covered a lot of territory. But uh, overall, both of these things are an hour and a half each. So that's this is three hours of just content that that has not been released yet. That's just interviews and behind the scenes. So it's really just it, it's a solid chunk of material. Right. And that's not and that's um that's foregoing all of the other archive, quote unquote, archival features that they ported over from the DVD set to this set so you still have all of that great information too but we're just talking about the stuff that has never been for released so I mean it is really it's a wealth of information that again it's worth the price of admission so if you want to pick it up you got 10 stars between Will and myself about uh, about that recommendation so but um, you know talking about the season 2 Enterprise Blu-ray set isn't the only thing that we've been talking about here on Trek FM this past week so here's a quick look at some of the other things you may have missed elsewhere on the network Previously on Trek.fm, Standard Orbit. 
I have been pushing this since I saw mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Into Darkness. And I saw Into Darkness like a week before it came out in the US. So I've been pushing it for a long freaking time. And the idea, of course, is to do it. Captain Worf. Yeah, oh, Captain. Wait, no, that's not it. <laughs> Earl Grey. Really, she's following the Hasperat, I think, is really what it is. <laughs> Come for the revolution, stay for the Hasperat. It's got to be fresh Hasperat. None of that replicated stuff. Like, Daniel's, like, at the watching the end of this episode, like, tears are coming down the face. It's like, no, it's the Hasperat. It's so spicy. It's what it is. <laughs> the Orb. Also, the original title of this episode was A Matter of Breeding, which, when we talk about things feeling TNG-ish, that could have been a Riker episode. <laughs> <laughs> the ready room it's about people and feelings and emotions it's about philosophy it's about the future it's about hope it's about glory it's about intellectual promise that's what Axnar is about it is not a story about pew 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 I promise you that to the journey I do have one honorable mention name it Prax Oh, <laughs> How could we not have a top five season five moments without Prax? Warp five. It kind of like is akin to um, when fans saw the galaxy class in the next generation for the very first time. And you had a, basically a crew of civilian compliment of what, over a thousand people? About two thirds of that compliment were civilians and their families. So you d actually did have teachers and scholars and scientists and their extended families on board. Commentary, Trek stars. But you would never pick up on that based on the way that it plays out, aside from the fact that they explicitly tell you in the dialogue, <laughs> you know? The 602 Club. It is what it is. I mean, Tom Cruise is who he is, but at the, at the end of the day, he delivered this fantastic movie, and so did all the other new characters. Literary Treks. You know, um, you had the great Enterprise book, The Good That Men Do. And this is the good that men don't do. And, uh, you know, Edmund Burke is is famous for, for saying the, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Mm -hmm. Axanar, the official podcast. It is the spirit of TOS that matters that's being captured, but it doesn't necessarily have to be the aesthetic. The aesthetic was 1966 to 1969 that had its moment, it had its time. And there's a certain amount of charm still to that. But it doesn't allow you to push the narrative forward because that type of aesthetic holds creativity back, in my opinion. Women at Warp. Keiko could totally beat the crap out of Rumpelstiltskin. <laughs> this is so, like, I cannot buy this at all. That she's just sitting there being like, oh, my baby. At the very least, she could throw a plant at him or something. <laughs> because we established in TNG that pot foo is a thing. <laughs> and that's what else is happening on Trek.fm. So if you liked what you heard on the show and you would like to support what we do here at Trek FM because we are an independent station that needs funding so that we can continue bringing you all this great content. If you visit patreon.com slash trekfm, you can find our current goals and different milestone contribution levels that fit you and your needs if you want to support us and support your fandom with Trek FM. Now, there are a couple of great perks that you will see there on patreon.com slash trekfm, but Probably one of the coolest things that we've just uh, started to introduce to all the fans out there is something called the Roundtable Session. Now, the Roundtable Session is a $25 uh, entry fee, 
uh, for um, your donation to Patreon, and Will hosts that. So, Will, why don't you tell us a little bit more about the Roundtable program for Patreon? Sure. It's just another way for us to thank the listeners out there that uh, that listen to Track FM and all of our programming, just to to thank them for their support, but also give them an opportunity to also interact with us. And it's just a it's an informal roundtable where we have hosts from the different shows uh, interact with the, the patrons at that level, and it's some it's the hosts that sometimes don't normally interact with each other. So we have hosts from Earl Grey and To the Journey and Orb and Warp Five interacting, and we're just talking about Trek in general, and we're talking about issues. Uh, both in production and out of production. You can talk about the episodes themselves or what does Trek mean in terms of, uh, of pop culture and, and the large issues around it. So it's just, it's, it's a free-for-all, but it's, it's a free-for-all in the best sense of the word. We can really cover topics that we wouldn't normally cover in each of our show episodes, um, our individual shows that are focused on a series. So I think it's just a really great way to, to interact with other hosts. And it's really great interacting with um the patrons who I see in the Babel conference, but it's really great seeing an actual face um, mm-hmm. to the actual name. It's you really develop a rapport, although the miracles of technology allows us to to interact with people thousands of miles away. I still feel a connection to people that I can see face to face. So it's a, it's a really great place to, to really accelerate your fandom. I think Trek FM is, I was always a Star Trek fan, but I feel like this has just gone to warp 10 basically and I think this is just another avenue for a lot of other people just to really dig deep into their fandom and just be involved. And Will and I both came on board the network by looking at the um, the offerings at patreon.com. And we both came in at the associate producer level. And we we were just so involved with our fandom here that we wanted to make sure that the the content and the quality of the production and the programming at Trek FM just kind of like kept getting better and better and better. And uh, there was some opportunity for us here. And now we're the hosts for Warp 5. And then Will does his great job with being the content manager. So, you know, if there's stuff that you'd like to talk about with him in terms of uh, trying to get content that you would like to hear on the show, you know, give him a shout. He'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. But if you really do like what you hear and you really do want to support what we're doing here, please take a look at patreon.com slash trekfm and see uh, which one of those offerings works best for you and your lifestyle. And uh, our associate producers here for the show, we can't thank them enough because it's their donation that allows us to do what we do here on the show. And our associate producers are Floyd Dorsey and Mike Morrison. And thanks for all of your support, guys. Uh, we really, really appreciate what you do for us. And uh, we would very much like for you to, uh, to join us here uh, in the conference room uh, on a future episode. And uh, they also support us hugely, as they do with all of the efforts that we do on Trek FM and the Babel Conference. And the Babel Conference is Trek FM's dedicated Facebook listeners page. Now, it is for the listeners, so if you would like to join us, there is a join group there and is invitation. Uh, that is your invitation to try and get in there. So um, hit that, and we will take a look at that and make sure that you get access to the Babel Conference. So that's Babel, B-A-B-E-L in your search bar on Facebook. Now, if you'd like to get in touch with us here at Trek FM, you can do so in a variety of different ways. You can go to trekfm slash contact and look in the sidebar on the show page, or you can go to speakpipe.com slash trekfm and leave us a voice message or a subspace signal as you like. You can also contact us through Twitter at trekfm, Facebook, that's facebook.com slash trekfm, and as I mentioned earlier, the Babel Conference, and that's B-A-B-E-L in your search field on Facebook. And so, so, Will, um... We have been getting a lot of really good feedback on the show, and I think that a lot of people are, are enjoying getting in touch with all of us to share their information, to share their ideas. So 
how can all of our fans get in touch with you if they want to like talk about content creation, if they want to talk a little bit more about enterprise, anything that they have in Trek related or non-Trek related, how's the best way they can reach you? Sure. You can always find me, like you mentioned, Norm, in the Babel Conference, which is our dedicated Facebook group. I post there almost daily. Uh, we're always talking about all things Trek. We even talk about other non-Trek things because it's 602 Club. So it's just a great space to talk about all things pop culture and geek. It's just a really great place. And that's where our community thrives right there. And of course, you can also find me on Twitter at, at Will underscore Win, spelled N-G-U-Y-E-N. You can just always shoot me a tweet or a message about Trek or things non-Trek as well. You can also um, contact me there just to talk about things that you want to, to see in future Trek FM shows. So um, I'm always, always love hearing from the listeners. So please feel free to drop me a line anytime. Awesome. Well, thanks so much. And uh, that was a fun show. And I can't wait to get to season three on Blu-ray. And uh, if you'd like to get in touch with me, you can always find me here on the network uh, or on the Babel Conference. You can also find me on Twitter at Norman Lau. That's N-O-R-M-A-N-L-A-O. You can always find me on the Axonar fan group page on Facebook because I'm a huge supporter of that project and what Alec Peters is doing with uh, the upcoming Axonar movie. And and I'm a huge, um, you, you know, I'm a huge supporter of what we do with Patreon. Uh, I'm a proud sponsor um, and I have been uh, for a while now. And uh, I'm an executive producer here for the Trek FM network. So thanks everyone for listening and join us again next time here in the conference room for another episode of Warp 5. 